0: is unspeakable
1: the dead won't bother me it's the living you gotta worry about
0: Some, if I couldn't keep them
1: there with me whole I, at least I felt that I could keep uh, their skeletons.
0: Hello and welcome to the Bad Taste Crime Podcast. I am Vicky,
1: and I'm Janelle, and we're back. We sound normal. We sound normal <laughs> again.
0: Yes, the sickness has passed over me. Thank goodness. That was like that. Fucking sucked. It was bad. It's bad cold. Bad bad cold. Not COVID. I'll also in say in a surprising shocker, surprising twist. COVID. Yeah. Um. So recovered from that quite nicely, and I'm ready to. Talk about crime
1: again. Yes, nothing I didn't gets you out of about. the cold doldrums like murder.
0: Oh my God, it's so true. <laughs> and I did stay at home watching a lot of like t- streaming TV. So our Netflix and Kill yeah. is going to be
1: lit? <laughs> uh,
0: yeah, we'll see. We definitely okay. have a lot to talk about. It was not all crime <laughs> mm-hmm. either. I did finally finish
1: or catch up on um what we do in the shadows. Oh, I watched the entire series from beginning and end of uh, Search Party. Oh. So that was a wild ride. How long is that? It's 5 seasons. Oh my gosh. Okay. <laughs> Turning wow. and burning. I had 2 weeks off, man.
0: <laughs> you had lots of time. That's and like then. the first time you've had like an extended period of like not doing anything in I feel like forever.
1: And I tried to force myself to do stuff and then I was like, "Meh."
0: Don't fill your schedule.
1: No, I went to the gym, watched TV, and that was about it.
0: We're similar in that way where it's like, look at all this free time I have. I could do whatever I want. I'm going to choose to fill my time with crap and then make myself busy again. Well, I
1: did make a list, but then I did not check it. Fair. Mm
0: -hmm. Um, Okay, let's get this party started, I guess. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this is gonna be a party episode, isn't it? If this is your first time listening, a special hello to you. Let's head on over to the newsroom.
1: Yeah, we, to breathe, our to we sit watching our TVs while some local newscaster tells us that today we had 15 over sizes, 635 crimes. As if that's the supposed to be. We know things are bad, worse than bad.
0: So this week I wanna do something a little different because mm. there has been a lot that has happened since last time I record- we recorded. Yeah. So I kind of Convictions and Yes. And all kinds of things.
1: Mostly lots of convictions.
0: Yes. So I want to kind of do like a rapid fire news round so we can give our takes on some of these things. I have like my top three. And if I'm forgetting anything, I'm sure you will let me know. Mm -hmm. But the first one I want to talk about is Elizabeth Holmes found guilty on four counts of defrauding investors, not guilty on three charges of defrauding patients and on charges of conspiracy to defraud investors, uh, mistrial on three counts of defrauding investors. Okay. So Elizabeth Holmes, for those who are unaware, was the CEO and founder of Theranos, a company that purported to be able to run hundreds of tests on a single drop of blood. They could never do that. Mm -hmm. Um, They were oftentimes using third-party machines to run tests and then lying to investors about what type of technology they were using, who they had gotten approvals from and reviews from, et cetera, et cetera. Very interesting case. I highly recommend looking into it. Anyway, Mm -hmm.
1: thoughts? I mean... Was she going to get convicted for anything else? No. No. <laughs> Everyone's but, like, oh, what about the patients? I'm like, eh. I get
0: it. And <laughs> honestly... <laughs>
1: it wasn't really approved, so...
0: Yeah. <laughs> and this is this is a trial that I was following as it was going on, and I don't feel like the evidence that they provided for the patient side of the case was as strong. Mm-hmm. Like, they definitely had stronger evidence for defrauding investors. Yeah. I am... Glad that she was found guilty on some Mm -hmm, things. mm Because there is a whole lot of juicy, juicy evidence that is like, homegirl is a liar. Like, there is. There is.
1: Just look at her face.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It tells all. They have not sentenced her yet. They're actually postponing sentencing. Last I heard, it was until after her business partner and former lover Sunny Bawani's trial, um, who's mm-hmm. <laughs> also up for a number of fraud charges. The implication being she may cooperate with the government on their case Against for Jen. a reduction in sentence. Mm-hmm. So we will see.
1: I don't know if she's gonna serve really anything.
0: Yeah. I'm I I will be interested to see.
1: If she does it'd probably be like month. Like yeah. a month or two.
0: Yeah, because she so far has not been in detention at all. Mm-hmm. So, you know, she doesn't really have like time served. You know what I mean? So yeah. we will see. We'll probably follow up when that happens. That will probably be like three years from now. So mm-hmm. uh, you'll be waiting. Check back in three years. We just made a if commitment the world to cover those three years. Oh my God. Then, yeah. Um, check back. <laughs> okay. News story number two Ghislaine Maxwell guilty. Um, Found guilty on one count of sex trafficking of a minor, one of transporting a minor with the intent to engage in criminal sexual activity, three counts of conspiracy to commit also charged co felonies, uh, not guilty on one charge of enticing a minor to travel to engage in illegal sex acts. She's also currently awaiting trial on two counts of perjury for lying under oath during a 2015 civil suit regarding Epstein's abuse of underage girls. I'm not going to go into Ghislaine Maxwell's case because you guys should know who she is. Like, yeah. I truly. She was the the co-conspirator with Jeffrey Epstein. hmm mm-hmm. Abusing young girls. Sexually mm-hmm. abusing young girls. Yep. Cool. So that's an exciting one. That was surprising. They have not, also not sen- sentenced
1: her as of yet. I've been uh, hearing all kinds of conspiracies how it's not actually her in court. It's Is that a thing? It's a thing because she's wearing a mask and there's so many people who are like, that's not her. Um, Because they won't let people take pictures, so it's all drawing, so they're like, it's not her. Yeah, but it's, I'm pretty sure. Mm -hmm. You know what kind of world we live in
0: right now. She's been in custody this whole time also, right? A decent
1: long time, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because she was, like, on the lam.
0: Yes, yeah, they, oh yeah, no way would they give her bail. Yeah, No. Okay, guys. <laughs> Can so, we
1: yeah, just... that's a thing. That's a conspiracy theory. It's not. Oh, actually I her. didn't
0: even know. I didn't even. And know. then there were
1: lots of really beautiful T-shirts. The people uh, made call that said "Best Friends Forever," and it was Jeffrey Epstein and Clinton. Oh God! And <laughs> they're real pictures of them together, and it's like got hearts all over it, and it's like "Best Friends Forever" hashtag. <laughs> that's really so, funny. Yep. There is a lot oh, of God. people saying that there is gonna be a few people uh, going down. Like um, the queen just disavowed. Yes, yeah, the he prince, was so. he was stripped
0: of all of his prince Andrew mm-hmm. was stripped of all of his military titles and uh, something else that is a big deal. I forget what the actual term is, but a bunch of his titles. Yeah,
1: yeah, that's kind of a big mm-hmm. deal. And so they they released like a lot more names off of the list and like yeah there's a lot of really great fantastic memes about it yeah (laughs) check your local tiktok (laughs) i'm sure we will be following
0: up with this um my my last one that i have is the death of robert durst Mm -hmm. which Mm -hmm. was like my mom, my my mom called me from the hospital. She's fine, everybody. Mm-hmm. Just know she's okay. But she called me from the hospital. It's like, did you just see the news? Robert Durst died, and I was like, what? How do you know this already? It was all over the news. Yeah. Well, and I. Well, the thing, it was like within the. Half hour that I had left the hospital when I was there, Mm -hmm. I was visiting with her and it was like within that half hour. So by the time I got home, I was like, oh, my God. Mm -hmm. Uh, So anyway, or maybe when I was leaving the hospital anyway, Robert Durst died. So Robert Durst was sentenced to life in prison for the murder of his longtime friend and confidant, Susan Berman. Uh, he died in prison at the age of 78, awaiting trial for the murder of his wife Kathleen Durst in 1982, which he was recently indicted for in December of 2021. And it he's also the star of HBO's The Jinx, which if you haven't watched it, highly recommend. Very good. What a mad. The dude is... He, well, first of all, he was looking frail anyway. Mm-hmm. He was also wrapped up in a trial in Galveston, Texas, where he they he was not convicted for murdering his neighbor, but it was self-defense and then he followed that up by dismembering the corpse and putting it into
1: the self-defense Vicky. Obviously. Yeah. Into the Gulf I think. And so <laughs> I mean that is self-defense. <laughs> I have to. I mean like
0: legally speaking I have to say he was not convicted of that crime mm-hmm. and they did not charge him with dismemberment of a corpse. So he did admit to that in court. This has just been a saga that has spanned so many years. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's kind of a bummer that he wasn't able to be like fully held accountable considering they had just charged him with the murder of his wife mm-hmm. from the 80s so like I don't know I had mixed feelings about this thoughts any thoughts he's a piece of shit but Bye like Felicia I, yeah. <laughs> like, I just I you know I didn't
1: have as much of an attachment to him as you do yeah <laughs> I, I wish
0: the trial process would have been able to been seen through and then have him die in prison. Yeah. But <laughs> at the same time, no love lost.
1: <laughs>
0: so did I miss anything? Did I miss any of the big news stories? I mean, there Bigger was ones? lots
1: of other stuff. Like, there was supposedly a break in the case for the Delphi murders. Mm. I mean, there's a lot of stuff going well, on. Well,
0: we did have the uh,
1: convictions. Joel Osteen might get convicted on fraud. We I had mean,
0: like, you know, there's The lots convictions of stuff. in the Ahmad Aubrey case, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, which, good job.
1: Yeah. Again, I was surprised. There's lots yeah. of surprises.
0: Yes. Towards the end yeah. of the year, there was of course Slash at
1: the beginning of the year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: <laughs> There's some things I don't want to talk about, like Rittenhouse. Yeah. But that's a whole other thing. Mm-hmm. We're not going to talk about that here. It, Which I feel it will like be too much. I for feel me. like
1: the case of Mont Aubrey, that conviction was like a direct kind of response. Yeah. Which was surprising. Yeah. Yeah. I was surprised Um, that that happened, considering where it took place, you know? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs)
0: So, big, big end slash beginning of the year. So Um, many plot twists. Yeah, truly, (laughs) truly. So, we're going to move on to Netflix and Kill, which this week we are going to talk about uh, Level Playing Field. It is on HBO. Not your typical true crime documentary, Mm -hmm. but I think it's really important. It's it's a four-part documentary series from HBO and Vox that tells the stories from the world of sports. The episodes look at broader social inequity within the sports world. Episode one talks about the Midnight Basketball program, which was originally at- enacted in Baltimore in the 1990s as a way to bring in black youth in the times when they would be running in the streets, you know, mm-hmm. in the perceived... This is when the tough on crime bill started coming out. And yeah. then Midnight Basketball so it was like community was, program. Yeah, yeah, yeah community yeah. program. They also taught employment skills mm-hmm. and some other things. But that that was kind of the idea. So Clintons came in and then the Midnight Basketball program got attacked in the crime bill, and it was kinda a of whole thing. Very interesting episode. Episode two looks at issues of compensation in the NCAA, which is especially a hot topic now as we're discussing a wage shortage and people being paid what they deserve to be paid Mm -hmm. uh the ncaa and athlete compensation has has been something that has now gone to the supreme court i think they're allowed to make sponsorship deals like advertising deals off of their own brand (laughs) i guess Um, episode three takes a look at horse racing which is heavily supported by mainly immigrants doing behind the scenes dangerous and difficult work and the broader social issues there. Um, And finally, episode four looks at the story of WNBA star Elizabeth Williams as she leads a fight against the owner of the team, Kelly Loeffler, as Raphael Warnock challenges her Georgia Senate seat in the 2020 elections, which is purely political. Very interesting. Like, look back. Anyway, I mainly wanted to include this because that first episode about midnight basketball and kind of like the broader implications on inner city crime um and the way it was being handled in the 90s because it had a huge mm-hmm. effect on a, many of our crime bills now yep not much has changed right <laughs> yeah pretty much mm-hmm. um
1: did you have an opportunity to watch this yet i did not know. okay it's it's good. Um definitely I tend to shy away things once they start talking about sports. <laughs> yeah, but like nah, I'll put that on the back burner, the back 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 burner. <laughs> yeah,
0: it's it is about sports, but it's it's. I mean, they definitely have like a broader context, right? Mm-hmm. Even the NCAA compensation issue, they t- they directly tie it into the issues with independent contractors and companies like Uber and Lyft and DoorDash and. The way that companies are using language to reclassify employees yep. um, so they don't have to pay them as much mm-hmm. or provide them as many benefits.
1: That's
0: right. So <laughs> I
1: honestly, I think you would like it. Mm-hmm. Because well, it, now that you've told me that it's yeah. m- more than sports. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Way. <laughs> anytime we're talking about labor and and workers, compensation and rights, I'm down.
0: Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Definitely an interesting look. I think everybody should, should take a look. Not our grim, mm-hmm. normal grim documentaries. Have
1: they tried to unionize sports at all? I feel like that would maybe be better. Um, like a student-athlete union. Yeah, I'm honestly not not sure. Because I work for a university, and there's been a large wave of university workers unionizing. They, I mean, the School of Art and Design in Chicago just... Got their workers unionized. My school is has been unionized for a while. yeah, and usually that trickles down to student body unionization eventually. So I feel like that would be a good way. yeah, for them to go if that isn't already in motion. Yeah I'm not sure, <laughs> but
0: I agree. I think that would be a good way to go. Unions are good.
1: They are.
0: Unions are Very good.
1: few are ran by the mob. Yeah. Very few.
0: <laughs> um, this is actually a great segue into ah. our episode because on this week's episode, we are talking about Las Vegas
1: crimes. We've Las Vegas. There better be all kinds of ching noises and slot machines, slot machines happening right now.
0: <laughs> big brass, big shows, yes, big feathers, of, um, big headdresses, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. big lights. <laughs> Big time. The Rat Pack. The Elvis. <laughs> Britney Spears. I know. I'm just <laughs> naming things. Britney. That are from Gaga. Elton. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um. So we are going to talk about Las Vegas this week. I kind of just wanted to take a little trip somewhere, fun <laughs> and not seedy at all, and you know, I don't know, something a little different. Yeah. So we're going to talk about what I'm going to talk about. Al Bramlett, and Local226. Ha ha. Are you? F- like I knew yeah. what you were going to talk about. Are But you, I didn't. Are you familiar with the story at all?
1: I am a little bit. Okay. Um, if you don't know, Vicky, I do have family that moved to Las Vegas under some uh, suspicious I didn't, but I'm also not surprised. Suspicious Not surprised, not surprised um, it's the slightest. the Italian side yeah. of my family. <laughs> And my mother has several relatives that live in Las Vegas still, Yeah. and I still won't go. I don't ever want to go to Vegas. I'm sorry <laughs> to disappoint everyone. It's just not for me. I do. You know,
0: I saw the story and was like, Ooh, this is totally something Janelle would be into. Mm-hmm.
1: I mean, maybe if it was the 1940s, I'd go for the shows. Yes. Yeah. But it also wasn't the way it is now. You know? No, it was a so, lot different. When it was up and coming. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not interested.
0: (laughs) Um, Okay. So Al Bramlett was born in Jonesboro, Arkansas. He worked in the service industry in early life as a dishwasher in Joliet, Illinois, at the age of 14. Um, He would go on to join the U.S. Navy during World War II before moving to L.A. to become a bartender, as well as the business agent for the local bartenders union.
1: Who knew that existed?
0: (laughs) I learned all sorts of things. Not me. Looking at this, yeah. Um, So later in 1946, Bramlett moved to uh, Las Vegas, immediately becoming active in the Culinary Worker Union Local 226.
1: Again, who fucking thought chefs were unionizing?
0: (laughs) They had all sorts of unions. A union for for everyone. Yeah. His goal was to help in organizing the many cooks, waiters, and bartenders working out in what was at the time the up-and-coming casino industry in Las Vegas. This was like super early days of Mm -hmm. building up the Strip, opening all these big major casinos, heavily mob-influenced. Oh, yeah. A lot.
1: Greatest place to hide a body. (laughs) Could that be it? Could that also be the greatest way to wash money? Perhaps.
0: Yeah. (laughs) It's true. Probably Mm -hmm. still is. Yeah. Uh, So this wasn't the first time that restaurant and hotel workers had organized. They'd been doing so since the 1890s. But unions... Crazy. Unions across... (laughs) I didn't realize that labor unions had gone back that far. Oh, yeah. That's crazy. It heavily
1: revolves around a lot of uh, anarchists. Yeah. (laughs) Of the time period. In case you didn't this do, is Anarchist Corner. Do Janelle. support. <laughs> <laughs>
0: um, but unions across the country have little to no power until, according to the Las Vegas Review-Journal, quote, President Franklin Roosevelt sponsored laws that increased the bargaining power of relatively unskilled workers, allowing them to join forces with craftspeople like chefs. The National Labor Relations Act, or the Wagner Act, guaranteed the right to strike to all unions as well. So this was really like when unions were coming into their full potential with mm-hmm. some real leverage to do something about workers rights. With the local 226, Bramlett had become the local secretary secretary treasurer, which is like the highest it's it's basically like the union boss mm-hmm. by 1954, so his methods and impacts were seen almost immediately. Uh, This is from Mayhem in the Desert. Quote, the union boss early on earned a reputation for tough tactics on behalf of his members. When a hotel was late making payroll in 1956, Bramlett obtained a writ of garnishment and had sheriff deputies impound the casino's cash. Payroll was made within 40 minutes of the seizure. Yep.
1: (laughs) Most of the time
0: it's lying. (laughs) Yeah. I just love the idea of them being like, well, we got to come in and take your money. and They're like, wait. Uh, We're going to put handcuffs on this cash right now. (laughs) We just found enough to pay the... Weird. Like, it just appeared.
1: Wasn't here at all. By
0: 1963, Bramlett was able to bring in more than 8,000 workers into the local, as well as consistently delivering a steady increase in wage scale and benefits. However, his reign of power was not all sunshine and rainbows, and many of the union members began to... Um, Like pushback on his leadership. Hmm. I get the impression that the his tough tactics were being equally used on union members as they were on the organizations he was trying to negotiate with. Bramlett was careful to ensure his power would be hard to remove by changing uh, the rules for the elections Again, from Mayhem in the Desert, quote, he limited eligibility in elections for the head position in the union, secretary-treasurer, to only include members of the executive committee, each of which had been handpicked by Bramlett. Seems legit. Always. (laughs) During his time in power, Bramlett really only had one legitimate contested election in 1963 when Bramlett appointee Luther Shu attempted to win an election, not only did he lose, but was also forced out of his position by a dispatcher, as a dispatcher by Bramlett, for the best interests of the union. "Quote unquote."
1: Sure.
0: Bye. <laughs> <laughs> These tough tactics were on full display during the strike of '76, when thousands of cooks, waiters, and dishwashers left their jobs.
1: This seems vaguely
0: familiar. <laughs> Almost like it's happening right now. The group was demanding an increase in wages and refused to return to work until the heads of the major casinos agreed.
1: Hmm, not much has changed. It sounds so familiar. This is like a learning
0: from history moment. Everybody, pay attention, okay? <laughs> As a result, the casinos were forced to close while restaurants and shows were temporarily closed. With the strikes came violence that would break out along the picket line, while Bramlett patrolled the picket lines in his Cadillac. <laughs> Which just is like
1: the, that... yep. the mm-hmm. image, the
0: imagery. <laughs> in total, the strike lasted two weeks, with strikers often blocking roads along the Strip, Of course, Nevada Resort Association, um, the representation of the casino owners, they had their own opinion of the situation, of course. I wonder what it was. (laughs) They took out ads in local newspapers claiming the local wasn't negotiating in good faith. Um, They were like, these unions are not negotiating in good faith at all, trying to win public opinion. So while this battle for public opinion was raging, a third force... Enters into this whole field when housekeepers attempted to bring attention to their efforts to join the strike with the culinary local in the areas that they were striking. So, like the culinary, which is bartenders, waiters, um, like chefs, mm-hmm. those guys, completely separate from housekeepers. Yeah. And there was some battle with them, like trying to join the strike. Mm-hmm. Anyway, at the end of two weeks, the Nevada Resort Association agreed to nearly all of Locals' demands in a four-year contract. While the culinary union primarily focused on casinos, restaurants, and hotels on the Strip, there were efforts by the organization to bring in off-strip restaurants. For many years, the union picketed outside of off-strip high-end restaurants. In the case of the Alpine Village Inn, that effort spanned 20 years, which is a long ass time to be picketing yeah. anything. Mm-hmm. But the tensions between the union and the restaurants finally boiled over in 1975 when a small bomb went off in an employee locker behind the Alpine Village Inn.
1: Now that is what I know of. <laughs> <laughs> um, That's the kind of picketing I'm familiar with.
0: <laughs> this is this is where all of the exciting stuff happens. Mm-hmm. Upon further investigation, police discovered another small bundle of explosives and two smoke canisters that had not detonated. They were attached to the establishment's air conditioning unit, so the idea was that they were trying to like push all of the smoke into the restaurant mm-hmm. through the air vents. Okay. Three months later, another bomb went off on the Al- Alpine Village Inn's roof, where over 300 people were dining and working. 30 seconds later, a second bomb went off on the roof, blowing debris into the kitchen and starting a fire. Amazingly, everyone inside the building was able to escape without injury. They're just like blowing holes in the roof and everyone's yeah. fine. One month later, in January 1976, an explosion occurred at another restaurant that had pushed back against the Culinary Union's efforts, David's Place. Um, Again, from Mayhem in the Desert, quote, David's place was left in ruins. In fact, the bomb was so powerful, it sent a light fixture at a nearby bank careening to the floor and shattered windows in in a half dozen buildings. Several people at a residential facility for the elderly next door to David's place were injured by flying glass. The Culinary Union denied any involvement in the bombings, and no suspects were arrested in connection with the crimes.
1: Okay. I mean... It does sound suspect because why would you blow up the area where you would be working and not, like, just front of house? You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, I guess kind the locations of. Locations sound a little sus. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Things stayed quiet for a year until January of 1977 when a patrolling security guard at the village pub noticed a puddle of gasoline under a jeep near the building. When he took a closer look, it was actually a steady stream of gasoline coming from the jeep. Mm -hmm. And being suspicious, he called the police immediately. A bomb squad was sent out when it was discovered the jeep was rigged to blow when somebody had opened the door. So the hope was (laughs) you get a security guard who's curious enough to open the door. And you don't open the
1: door. Someone just, just goes around opening doors of cars. Security guards,
0: apparently. <laughs> While authorities worked to disarm the bomb, another call came in from a different security guard at another non-union restaurant called Starboard Tack, who had discovered another Jeep with gasoline dripping from it. It was clear that they were dealing with identical devices, and both were diffused largely, largely without incident, but like the The only injury happened when Fire Marshal Tom Huddleston was removing an ignition device from the Jeep. It, like, exploded as he was taking it out, and he Mm. had suffered burns after the device exploded, but otherwise was unharmed. No serious injury. Although they had denied responsibility, and if you haven't guessed by now, Bramlett had ordered the bombings Mm -hmm. um, against the non-union establishment. I think... Part of the reason why the locations might seem suspect is because they hired people out to to place the bombs. Mm-hmm. So I don't know that they would be thinking in the same, uh, like, let's not damage where our workers would be working were they in the union. But they were pushing back against the union anyway, so. Yeah. To accomplish his violent plan, Bramlett had hired Tom and Gramby Hanley, a father and son hitman team, to place the bombs The Hanley's had been paid tens of thousands of dollars to plant bombs in various places. For the two Jeep bombings, Bramlett had agreed to pay a total of $17,000, $7,000 up front and the rest after the job had been completed. But from Bramlett's point of view, because the bombs never went off and the police arrived to disarm the bombs, Mm -hmm. uh, it meant that the job hadn't been completed and he refused to pay them the other $10,000.
1: Yep. Sounds about right.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and the Hanleys, they wanted to get revenge for being stiffed their fee, of course. But they also knew that there were potential dangers going after Bramlett because he was known to carry a 357 revolver at all times just in case an enemy tried to attempt anything on him because mm-hmm. he had also made a shit ton of enemies by this point.
1: Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Hard not to.
0: To avoid getting themselves shot, and I honestly, I'm not condoning these actions, but this is kind but of But you're brilliant.
1: not not condoning This is kind of action. brilliant. <laughs> We're in the gray area. Yeah.
0: <laughs> to avoid getting themselves shot, the Hanleys decided to confront Bramlett at McCarran International Airport in Las Vegas mm. after the height of the skyjacking phase that, you know, there was that period of time where everybody was
1: hijacking, everybody skyjacking. Is. all the planes taking them all Mm -hmm.
0: (laughs) there were a ton of laws that had been put into place right after that um, to help curb these skyjackings and so one of them was still not enough no (laughs) no they have been for a really long time yeah, and still do occasionally Mm -hmm. oh one of the laws that was put into place was banning weapons on aircrafts wow so (laughs) which who'd have thought right way to go (laughs) So when Bramlett was flying into the airport returning from a trip from Reno, the Henleys knew that he wouldn't be armed coming into the airport. So they chose to meet him at the airport without having to like risk the revolver coming out. Mm-hmm. I thought that was
1: that's kind of smart. <laughs> See, I thought that they were going to get him to try and shoot them at the airport. And you're not supposed to have a gun and get arrested. (laughs) That would have been even more clever. Yeah, that's true. (laughs) So after stepping off of the airplane
0: in February 1977, Bramlett called his daughter from a payphone saying he'd be home in 30 minutes. After hanging up, Bramlett was approached by the Henleys who told him they were going for a ride. They took him to a van in a nearby parking garage where a third man, Clem Vaughn, was waiting there, Bramlett was gagged and handcuffed, placed in the back of the van, and taken to the middle of the desert. Classic.
1: Very <laughs> casino-like. Yes. This really does kind of play out like
0: what you would assume like a mob movie in Vegas is. Well, I mean,
1: casino actually happened. Yes. So, like, them in the desert getting buried? that actually happened. Yes. <laughs> so, it's not a movie, it's real life.
0: True. So they drove out outside of the city limits. They stopped at one of those pay phones that's just like in the middle of the mm. desert and demanded that Bramlett call an executive that he knew at the Desert Inn Casino to demand a $10,000 loan. Mm. Bramlett complied, thinking he would be released after he did and arranged for the money to be picked up at Binion's Horseshoe Casino. After hanging up the phone, Tom Hanley emptied a revolver into Bramlett's body, killing him. In somewhat of a panic and also not thinking that they were actually going to kill them. There were reports of, like, Vaughn and Tom Hanley being drunk at the time that this was happening. And they had made assurances that once he made the phone call, he wasn't going to be killed. And then he decided to shoot him anyway, so it was a little... We didn't think we were actually going to kill him. Um, the Henleys and Vaughn dug a shallow grave in the desert and then covered Bramlett's body with debris and rocks and left him there. Yeah, Authorities were quickly alerted to Bramlett's disappearance and the story became national news. By this point, it had only been less than two years since Jimmy Hoffa disappeared. Hmm. So... Another union matter. <laughs> and people would really, really pay attention to something like that after such a short time. Although this mystery would be solved, unlike Jimmy Hoffa. Although there was some big development recently, but I don't think it I know panned they out. they
1: scanned a stadium and his body wasn't there. Yeah. He wasn't buried under home plate, was it? Or I third don't base? know. I forget. I don't know. <laughs> On March 18th,
0: 1977, a couple hiking a trail near Mount Potosi came across an unusual pile of rocks, Upon further inspection, uh, they discovered Al Bramlett's body and called police.
1: I'm just going to also state for the record that sometimes rocks are piled in certain ways because of religious beliefs in indigenous cultures. So, like, don't touch the rocks. But also... Call someone.
0: My first (laughs) thing would not be like, this pile of rocks looks weird. Let me take it all apart and see what's underneath. Yeah. Because I would immediately be like... It's something probably not good. Mm -hmm. And also snakes and scorpions. Yeah. Like, fuck that. Stop touching rock piles, please. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, my God. So upon further inspection, they found Bramlett's body. Thanks to nature, um, of course, there was little to no evidence other than Bramlett's body to be collected when police got there.
1: Because the desert.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Police were coming up with dead ends almost instantly. That is, until an anonymous tipster called police and provided incredible detail about what had happened on the night. Almost like
1: they were there. (laughs)
0: Almost like they were there. The tipster, it turns out, was Clem Vaughn. Definitely there. (laughs) (laughs) After telling authorities about taking Bramlett to the desert where he was executed, police began searching for the Henleys. They had skipped town following the slayings, but they were eventually located and arrested Knowing the jig was up, the Henleys decided to cooperate with authorities, providing information regarding an investigation into the leadership of Culinary Local 226. Because there's a whole bunch of other shit going on in that leadership, mm-hmm. including their involvement in non union restaurant bombings. Um, In exchange, the Henleys pled guilty and were sentenced to life sentences to be served at a federal prison in San Diego rather than in Nevada where they had way more enemies. Yeah. Definitely didn't want to be put in with all these people they had probably fucked over. Mm -hmm. The Henleys would continue their cooperation with the state when they were star witnesses during a federal racketeering trial. ...of several leaders of Local 226, including Bramlett's successor, Ben Schmody. Schmoody was acquitted of the charges after Judge Harry Claiborne was... Uh, he found insufficient evidence. In an interesting twist, and in line with the corruption running rampant through Vegas at the time, Judge Claiborne would go on to be one of only a handful of federal judges to be impeached and removed from office... Now, Claiborne was convicted of tax evasion and was later found guilty in a trial in front of the U.S. Senate. He was sentenced to 17 months in prison. While Schmoody escaped conviction for the bomb-related charges, he later was found guilty of fraud from working with organized crime outfits to obtain kickbacks from a union-funded health insurance plan.
1: Always goes all the way to the top. (laughs) For real. To literally the fucking judge. Like,
0: oh my god. After these initial convictions there were more investigations into Culinary Union Local 226 especially like the parent union's involvement with mobsters in Chicago at the time um like there all of this union action as we said has ties into the mob mm-hmm. um and there was like this looming takeover that Chicago was trying to do with the unions in Las Vegas. Mm. And there was some pushback from the people in Las Vegas. So there was a lot of tension there already. Anyway, eventually the union entered into a consent decree under the supervision of a federal court in an effort to provide transparency into the union's dealings to his credit. Al Bramlett increased the size of the union from 1,500 members in 1953 to 24,000 members in 1977. So that's a big uptake. Yeah. Like, he was not all a good guy, but Mm -hmm. he did do some really good things for the unions in Vegas. The Culinary Union, Local 226, is still one of the most effective and powerful unions in the country. So they are still... I think, less corrupt today, but um, totally in operation today and and doing well. Mm -hmm. So that is the story of Al Bramlett and Local 226 in Las Vegas.
1: I also was thinking about doing a mob related story just because it's Las Vegas, you know?
0: There's lots to choose from yeah, when it comes but to the mob.
1: I decided not to because I had a feeling you might do that. <laughs> <laughs> you were correct. <laughs> so I went a different route. Okay. And I went with, of course, an old timey story. Of course. So we're going to go uh, on yet another one of my trips in the Wayback Time Machine to Las Vegas before it was actually Las Vegas. Okay. We're going to be talking about the legend of Kehoe, a.k.a. the Mad Indian.
0: Okay. (laughs) This sounds kind of familiar. Okay. Kind of.
1: (laughs) So Nevada really at the time in the 1800s was the definition of the wild, wild west. It was part of the Spanish Empire until Mexico's fight for independence in 1821 And during these years, the area was predominantly indigenous groups like the Paiutes, the Ute, the Shoshone, the Pueblo, and the Washoa. And of course, there were lots and lots of other small groups, including the Spanish and uh, indigenous Mexicans. So... They didn't become a real problem until 1848 when the Mexican-American War started and it officially was taken over and became US territory. <laughs> it all the problem always starts when the US comes in. Yeah. Originally it was actually part of Utah, it wasn't its own state, and then they decided to separate it and it becomes Sierra Nevada in 1864. Now shortly after this there was a rush in mining, mostly silver and ore. And then it became the stuff of legends, the wild, wild, wild west. Okay. And I wanted to highlight all of these transitions because the makeup of Nevada, all of its different groups of people, and its kind of like rush to settlerism, like the hardcore colonialism that happened in the 1870s, was really what shaped this legend of Kehoe. Because the wild, wild west is all legends, that's exactly what this story is. Truly. It yeah. may or may not be true. Really? Maybe a fraction of it's true. Okay. But I'm gonna call this story the big one allegedly. So you're gonna hear me say allegedly a lot. Okay. Okay. <laughs> okay. All right. The tale really centers around how we tell stories and the perceptions of oral history. Now I I found a research paper. That really, like, kicked this off for me and kind of made me think about why this story should be a good one to tell. It's called Selective Remembrance, Narratives of Ethnic Reconfiguration and Spatial Displacement in the Life of Kehoe from 1880 to 1940. What a title. So I'm going to read the abstract because I think it'll kind of highlight what the issues are revolving around this story. So the paper's abstract reads, Social memories and collective representations act as vehicles for configuring, legitimizing, and sustaining particular constructs of knowledge and power in the world of lived relations while simultaneously marginalizing or negating others. This paper explores constancy and change in popular and official histories of a Southern Paiute man who lived in the Southern Nevada area from 1880 to 1940. Kehoe became the center of multiple historical accounts written over the course of a hundred years. Okay, so this piqued my interest because we often talk about like witnesses and yeah. and testimony. And all of these things that we rely on when we're talking about any sort of crime. And back then, when there wasn't forensics to be had, that's really all we truly relied on. Yeah. And we think a lot about how news is sensational now. Well, it was even more sensational then taking... Oh, my God. Yeah. ...exorbitant amount of liberties when discussing a story. Right. And... As we go through this story, we'll see how cultural bias, racism, all of these things shaped this story and led to this legend becoming a thing.
0: Okay. So,
1: now Las Vegas didn't become a town until 1905, and it was during the infancy of its history when it became the lawless paradise as we see it today, aka the Sin City, if you will. It did have gambling and legal prostitution back then at its beginnings, of course. Yeah. How could it be Las Vegas without it? Of course. Um, and it did actually go away for a small while during the temperance movement, but it didn't last long because really? it's got to be sinful. <laughs> I never would have thought. It was for a short period, but, yeah. you know, it, that took the United States.
0: <laughs> right, right. So
1: it's this lawlessness which what made the right place for everyone to kind of come and wreak havoc. hmm now Kihō is the main character of our story, and his background is really shrouded in history because what are documents, <laughs> right? No one's no one's keeping track of true, anything during this true, time period. Terrible at writing things down. Mm-hmm. He is estimated to have been born in 1880 and was of Indian origin in some capacity. Now it's hard to say what the facts are because obviously records don't exist and the way in which Nevada ping-ponged between all of these different countries from Spain to Mexico and then becoming a state also made it difficult. Yeah. So legend says that Kehoe was half indigenous and half Mexican, although there are some that say he was half white. Okay. Because of his location and the time period, it's safe to say he probably was Mexican and not white.
0: Okay. Yep. <laughs> I think that's fair. Um, yeah.
1: He may have been Mojave, Kokohoapa, Chemahawoe, like, all of these things are yeah. possibility, but most of the stories state he was Paiute. There's also a lot of mystery surrounding his mother. He had a couple brothers, and all were said to be from the same father and mother. The mother was supposedly Kokohoapa in a lot of the stories, but then they say he's Paiute. So we're just going to say he's Paiute. <laughs> Again, okay. very confusing. Yeah. And there is no records of, like, how she really died and not much about her other, you know, children. The only thing that we know is that she died young. And some say that she died from sickness, others say from suicide, and whichever the story, it fits the newspaper writer's narrative to the best that they used it. So I see. Okay. When they talk about his background, they often bring up his mother. And a lot of stories say that it she killed herself. So that fits the narrative of why he became the Mad Indian.
0: Okay. I see.
1: What I see. is known, what is true, is that his family, his entire family were outcasts. This is because Kehoe was considered quote-unquote half-breed. So he was only half-Indigenous, half-Mexican. Racism! Yes. He also had a birth defect. He had a clubbed foot. Okay. So his family reportedly lived on a reservation for a short while, but eventually he would move to work as a ranch laborer and wood gatherer in several of the nearby mining camps. There is an unconfirmed story around 1897 of a man who would later known be known as Kehoe killing another Native man... But the legend, the real legend of Kehoe, didn't start building until 1910 in the newspapers. And that's where we'll kind of begin. Okay. It was November 1910, and the first report tells Kehoe being the main suspect in the slaying of another Indian man during a brawl on the Las Vegas uh, area reservation. So allegedly, he and the other man were drinking when the dispute began. But there's another account, and it's very much different. Okay, I'm ready. (laughs) The other account, which is more predominant, is that the first man he actually killed was his half-brother, Eote. Now, the reason that they say he had to be killed was because he went into this berserker, murderous rampage. Allegedly. Oh, okay. (laughs) In such uh, occasions... When an indigenous person is, you know, going crazy, they expect another indigenous person to take them over. That was just like the... the that was like construct... the expected thing. And they okay. were supposed to bring the culprit or their corpse to authorities and be like, we took care of it. Uh, because uh, of the wild, wild west. Okay. Now, the alternative was if they didn't participate, they would face a campaign of retaliation by the white people. So that's kind of like, so this is very much like,
0: this is a you problem, you Mm -hmm. need to take care of it, or we'll take care of you. Kind of
1: thing. Mm -hmm. That's, okay, Okay, Wild West. Yep. All Mm -hmm. right. (laughs) Now, Kehoe and another uh, man named Jim White were sent after Ayote, and it was said that it was traditional among Indians at this time, when one of their own committed a capital crime, it was the culprit's brother or relative who had to execute him oh god tradition tradition oh, god. <laughs> god so that's why Kiho was sent after Yo tape okay rather than trying to drag the body through a canyon and a river Kiho reportedly allegedly cut off the you know his brother's hand as proof That he murdered him. And it was, you know, like they said, it was definitively him because uh, AOT had a distinguished hand missing a finger. Oh, okay. So they took that hand and say, look, this is him, the hand missing the finger. All right. So that was quote unquote crime number one.
0: (laughs) Okay, wait. (laughs) Hold on a second. (laughs) I am so, so, (laughs) so confused. Legend. I know. And this I mean this is a thing with legends, right? Mm-hmm. They're oftentimes not traceable. Exactly. They are conflicting. Huh? <laughs> they are absurd. Yep. <laughs> uh not logical. Mm-hmm. Uh you know. Okay. I'm just going to be along for the ride I think
1: on this yeah. one. Yeah. <laughs> you're going to you're going to come out of the story going what happened? <laughs> yeah. Okay. So After this, either he killed his brother or a random Indian man. (laughs) Those are the two stories. Uh, He supposedly was involved in a feud over killing a medicine man. And he was thought to have killed this Paiute medicine man named Bismarck. Now, there is no record of any of these homicides. Of course not. Not in the paper. Not anywhere. (laughs) But Kehoe left town for the Colorado River Country before the end of 1910. But during that time... Every single murder that happened in the El Dorado Canyon region was attributed to Keo.
0: Man, that's really suspicious. Mm-hmm. It's almost as if they had a scapegoat. Like, <laughs> it's, I, it, I just imagine the imagery of somebody pushing somebody else off of a cliff and being like, was Keo. Yep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Not me. Yes.
1: <laughs> oh, God. So, supposedly after this, he murdered two Paiute men and stole their horses. Eventually, he had to stop for supplies. so when he did, he stopped in Las Vegas and was confronted by a shopkeeper named High Vaughn, which then resulted in Kehoe being like, oh no, you saw me, so now I have to break both of your arms and hit you in the head and fracture your skull with a pickaxe handle. Allegedly. Oh god. (laughs) Allegedly. (laughs) Okay. Now, after this, he decided, oh, I'm... I'm going to stop murdering for a while and go get employed by someone. I mean, steps up in life, right? So he found employment with J.M. Woodworth, uh, who sent him to work cutting trees on Timber Mountain in the McCullough Mountain Range near Searchlight Camp. Somehow, supposedly, allegedly, Woodworth angered Kehoe, um, who then uh, reacted by fatally bashing in Woodworth's skull with a chunk of cedar wood. Again, allegedly. (laughs) Okay. <laughs> all they know is that the guy f- was found dead with a bloody stump next to his head. It was Keo. Keo did it. Now, Deputy Sheriff Howe formed a posse because Wild West! There are and... the forming posses left <laughs> so, and right. Oh, my God. There's so many posses in this story. And the group first went to the scene of Woodworth's killing where they found, allegedly, distinctive footprints left by Keho's club foot. So he wasn't wearing shoes? Right. Okay. <laughs> From there they tracked him to El Dorado Canyon, where they uh, led this led to the gold bug mine. There they found the body of a watchman, L. W. Doc Gilbert, who had been shot in the back, and Gilbert's badge had been stolen. Mm, okay. So they continued to track Kehoe to the Colorado River and they lost the trail. Though the lawmen had searched for Kehoe over two hundred miles, they went from Crescent to Nipton, but found nothing. Now, one of the books that I looked into was called Searchlight, The Camp That Didn't Fail by Harry Reid. It's interesting. Okay. <laughs> it's kind of like a self publish sort of situation. Oh, no. Oh, no. So a Big Fat allegedly on this one, uh, he devoted an entire chapter to Kehoe, which recalled a story of his grandparents, John and Harriet Reid, who were traveling to their mine by wagon in October of 1910. Supposedly, allegedly, they encountered an Indian galloping on a horse in their direction. They were carrying a thirty thirty Winchester saddle rifle, and they recognized him as Kehoe. Somehow. Probably by a wanted poster. Hey, that's but, Kehoe! Yeah. I mean, uh, uh, just to say, a lot of white people probably couldn't distinguish an Indian from an Indian, so. No. Now allegedly they stopped briefly exchanged greetings and then went on their respective ways but if he's such a murderer why didn't he like murder them and steal his wag their wagon and all of their food
0: he only murders when it's necessary i guess so
1: this uh garnered attention and this event that he did at searchlight garnered attention and eventually uh man named Frank Waite came into the picture. And this law officer would spend, like, his entire career searching for Kehoe. (laughs) Again, stuff of legends. Never found him? We shall see. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Mm -hmm. Now, it wasn't again until the end of 1911 when we saw Kehoe's name in papers. Uh, An article about the population boom in Las Vegas was written for the Las Vegas Age, which mentioned Kehoe's uh, exploits briefly in their description. And this is a quote. Quote, it may be that publicity about Kehoe will frighten away a few timid spirits, but the loss in this respect is small compared with the benefit to be derived by the furthering of the ends of justice by such publicity. Peace officers everywhere realize the advantages to to be derived from the aid of the press in helping the run-down criminals. Um, End quote. So... So come to Las Vegas, start a mine, and also help... Fight crime. <laughs> oh, God. I mean, <laughs> they crowd, were saying, it's like
0: crowdsourcing,
1: right? Yeah. So they were saying, you know, Las Vegas is a little dangerous, but the danger is far outweighed by the possibility of becoming rich by working in a mine or by catching the criminals. Sure. Rewards everywhere.
0: <laughs> Come to Vegas, get money.
1: Yeah. So <laughs> uh, it was then a few years later in 1913 when we see Kehoe's in the paper again they say he was all bloodthirsty but like it was a two-year waiting period before anything happened so like bloodthirsty Super how? bloodthirsty, you know <laughs> so in 1913 local newspapers attributed the death of a hundred-year-old blind indian known as canyon charlie to Keio. what a what a wild west name canyon charlie canyon charlie <laughs> Within the next two months, two more miners who were working claims at Jenny Springs on the Arizona side of the river were found dead, shot in the back. Their provisions and personal items were taken, including another deputy miner's badge. Oh, two badges pattern? she's taking. Is it a pattern? <laughs> Again, allegedly in all of this. Shortly after that, an Indian woman was found dead, still clutching a bundle of wood she had been gathering, but none of her personal effects had been taken. But of course, Kehoe was the one that killed her. Oh. Uh- sure the only liable culprit in any of these stories yeah (laughs) as kiho hysteria grew so did the rewards they would eventually reach two thousand dollars during that period's money so not a cheap chunk of change Yeah, but did they also know they were never going to have to pay that out? Duh. Nobody ever gets the reward.
0: Oh, my God. What a
1: fucking scam. What a scam. Oh, my God. So the Searchlight Bulletin newspaper reminded its readers of the principle that guided most European-American Indian relations during the 19th century. And they quoted, a good Indian is a dead Indian. What a wonderful musing, newspaper so they were basically saying you should just bring him in dead don't even bother the alive part okay jesus however after a few months the hysteria died down a bit and with no new killings being attributed to kiho he then became a full-on legend he became the boogeyman of el dorado canyon So people would tell stories if they were out or if people were going to go out to the canyon, they'd be like, oh, be aware of Kehoe. He's going to hit you in the head with an axe handle. And he Um, may or may not take your stuff, but definitely if you have a
0: badge. (laughs) He will murder your ass. So
1: (laughs) it wasn't until 1919 when Kehoe's name would splash across paper headlines again. Oh, oh, okay. So that's a long time. Yeah. It's a long time. Two old-timey prospectors named Will Hancock and Ether Taylor were found dead upstream from El Dorado Canyon. Both had been shot in the back, and Taylor's head had been smashed in with an axe handle. Oh, Classic Kehoe. Oh, Their supplies had been missing, and allegedly a strange footprint was found nearby. Clubfoot? Dun, 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 Was it the clubfoot? Perhaps. <laughs> a week later... On January 21st, 1919, Maud Douglas, the wife of an El Dorado Canyon miner, was awakened in the night by a commotion in their larder at the rear of their cabin. What's a larder? It's like a storage area for your kitchen. Okay. Usually they're underneath a house, but since gotcha. this is the desert, it was probably off the kitchen. Okay. Okay. A cupboard. Okay. <laughs> now, her husband supposedly heard a, a shotgun blast And then he came upon her, shot in the chest, surrounded by canned goods in their larder. Wait. So she... She... She Wait until the next paragraph. She... Okay.
0: (laughs) Yes. The woman
1: heard a noise and got up. Okay. (laughs) Not the man. Okay. When authorities arrived at the cabin near Cup, mine, they declared another one done by Kehoe. Now just keep this in mind. There were atrocities that were happening all over, and this one was especially bad because she was a mother. She had several children. Some of them were even adopted kids. She was, like, known in the area for taking care of all of these children. And Sheriff Sam Gay was so distraught that he ordered Deputy Frank Waite to round up another posse (laughs) and hire the best trackers they could find at once to find Kehoe and kill him or capture him, mostly kill him. But this is the thing. One of the little adopted children she had, a four-year-old boy who was in Maude's care, told the authorities that the woman had been killed by her husband. Obviously. And no one listened to this child. He was like, um, I'm pretty sure my fake daddy did it. And they were like, listen, child, it was Kehoe. Oh, my God.
0: (laughs) Oh, people are so stupid. Yep
1: what i okay. call hysteria oh mm. Mm. <laughs> so they they rounded up a posse <laughs> they pushed the child aside and they said we're gonna Get go find way. yeah the party did include several indians because they were the best trackers in the area and they tracked him north uh to the las vegas wash to colville and then on to muddy mountain where they lost his trail in a snowstorm now Wait picked up more men in Moapa valley including five additional indians and the group split into two parties one going each direction around the mountain encircling it okay sounds like a great plan no way he'd go over the mountain no
0: <laughs> that's a good point <laughs> oh my god that's funny
1: so <laughs> okay they found the remains of two freshly killed desert bighorn sheep but no other evidence and not their man they eventually found a trail that led back to the Las Vegas wash. Legend states that, supposedly, allegedly, two of the posse had been riding forward in the night to signal Kehoe and then riding back in the morning. So they were saying... Well, had a traitor in their midst. <laughs> the Las Vegasers are coming! The Las Vegasers are coming! <laughs> he was like, by know, land, my by way. Land. <laughs>
0: So oh again,
1: that was just another part of the legend. No evidence of wow. this. Just another story. I wouldn't, you know,
0: I wouldn't have been surprised if what's his face, the husband, was in the group of searchers. Like, right? Yeah, he's out here somewhere. I got a good I'm look sure. at him in the dark as that he ran way. off. <laughs> yeah.
1: God. Now many people along the way claim to have known and helped Kehoe. Um, including Merle Emery, who was a legendary Colorado River boatman, and he was very famous, another teller of tall tales. But he operated a ferry at Nelson's Landing in El Dorado Canyon for a long time. So he always said and never hid the fact that he saw Kehoe often and he just left the man alone. He's like, No business of mine. <laughs> okay. And of course, being, you know, an old timey boat ferry man he had great stories so that was one of his many stories all right from 1910 to 1919 Kehoe was accused of killing anywhere between seven and 30 people in El Dorado Canyon Black Canyon and Las Vegas okay now we're gonna fast forward to 1940 the wild wild west days of Nevada were done though they were still lawless (laughs) Mob. Obviously, this is the era that the real Las Vegas as we know it begins. Demobs. Mobbity mob mob. Mobbing. Mobbing all over. But February 1940, another headline splashed across the pages when Charlie Kenyon, along with his bro- with brother friends Art and Ed Schroeder, were prospecting along the Colorado about 10 miles below Hoover Dam. Where Charlie and Ed were working, they were on the high sides of a steep canyon, and they discovered what appeared to be this low-hanging stone wall ledge. The spot was 2,000 feet above the river and commanded a total view of the canyon. So it was like the perfect lookout point. Okay. There was a a little cave, and at the beginning of the cave, there was a tripwire that was rigged across the cave to an alarm bell. So if anyone walked in whoever was deep inside of the cave would hear them now
0: interesting
1: they went inside the canyon and there in the canyon were the mummified remains of a man alongside the man was a 3030 winchester rifle clothing cooking utensils tools moccasins and a special deputy badge number 896
0: is this is real mm-hmm.
1: this is real they actually found
0: they actually these found are known? okay
1: Frank Waite, the chief of police for Las Vegas, an original member of multiple posses, um, rushed to the scene and positively identified the remains as belonging to Kehoe. Uh, <laughs> I don't believe it. There are her pictures. Okay. <laughs> Look them up. Okay. I have man. a few at the bottom, but I don't think I put the... I oh, did. Oh, yeah, you did. The, this isn't the one picture I wanted to put. There's a pic. <laughs> Wait for it. I'll tell you all about okay. it. Okay. So, Why do I,
0: I mean am I wrong for being skeptical?
1: He had a 30-30 Winchester and the deputy's badge that he stole from the first deputy badge miner that he supposedly killed if he did in fact kill him. So okay. this person in the cave had a badge with So him. I mean circumstantial at best right it's like it, could, it probably, that one person. yeah
0: it probably is the guy that killed that one person but like is that the keo that also did all of these other things that they're accusing him of you know mm-hmm. who is keo
1: really exactly is he just inside of <laughs> all of us right so a few days later on february 21st 1940 a headline in the las vegas review journal read body of indian found oh, come on that was it Good reporting, guys. Oh, just wait for it. Kehoe's remains were taken to Palm Funeral Home in Las Vegas, and Charlie Kenyon, who had first found the body, demanded the reward. You remember that reward? Oh, yeah. Yeah. However, when the reward uh, came from, like, decades later, they just ignored his request. They're like, there's no reward. Okay. This was 1910. When the reward was happening. This is 1940. They're like, yeah, that reward doesn't exist. (laughs) I mean... There's no expiration dates on rewards, technically. There isn't. And if they didn't revoke it, then... So, Kenyon then demanded that the body be turned over to him. Finders fucking keepers. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Is that how this works? (laughs) Yep. Now, when he threatened... (laughs) (laughs) He threatened them. He said, you're going to give me the body and I'm going to sell it to the Las Vegas Elks Club for exhibition purposes. (laughs) We just took a hard left turn in this story. What the fuck
0: is this story? This is so um. This weird. all just goes to
1: show that there is absolutely zero regard for the bodies of indigenous people. Because oh um, what the fuck?
0: God damn it.
1: Now, a court order was issued to prevent him from doing this. Oh, good. So in the meantime, while this is happening, several Indian people came forward claiming to be Kehoe's heirs. As the corpse laid in storage at the funeral home, charges were accumulating and the facility was demanding that the body be moved and the bill be paid. Sure. Suddenly, Kenyon and all those heirs magically disappeared. Uh, whoa. No way. <laughs> and the judge then ruled that the funeral home had all the rights to the body. Oh,
0: so they were like, no, you just keep it, though.
1: <laughs> now, all this haggling had taken three years. Oh my. And the funeral home issued an ultimatum that if the body wasn't retrieved and the charges paid, it would be cremated and scattered over the desert. Okay. Now, here comes back old Frank Waite. Okay. Wait. Frank Waite. Who is that? The police officer who spent his entire career searching for Kehoe <gasps> oh, who identified yes. the body. Okay. 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 Got it. <laughs> his arch nemesis, Vicky. Okay. Okay. He There's a lot of people back. in this story. Give me... <laughs> He came back and paid the vi- the bill and was given the remains to Kehoe's body. And in a truly despicable fucking act, he gave the remains and artifacts to the Las Vegas Elks Club. Oh, my gosh. Who then produced what was then the biggest city's public celebration exhibition called Hell Dorado. Oh, good lord. Really? <laughs> yep. Yeah. The club then built a glass case and recreated a cave to exhibit the body and artifacts at Heldorado Village in Las Vegas. Kehoe's remains stayed on public display until the early 1950s. Oh my God! It's like 15 years. Okay. This
0: is all. You know what? I admire the name Haldorado. That is very good. <laughs> that's an amusement park. However, okay. Please, no, guys, no. Helderado is very good, but no.
1: Now that's not where the story ends. Wow. When the Elks Club got bored, and no longer wanted responsibilities over this indigenous person's fucking remains, they passed it to several private hands, selling it. Okay. And then it eventually had its way to the Museum of Natural History at the University of Nevada. Again, still not good. There it stayed until the mid-1970s. Okay. Finally... A retired Las Vegas attorney by the name of Roland H. Wiley secured the remains from the museum, and on November 6, 1975, Kehoe was finally laid to rest. So this lawyer fought to get the remains and then buried the remains of Kehoe at Wiley's Pahrumpf Valley Ranch. The ceremony was attended by Frank Waite, that motherfucker. Why is he still around? (laughs) Wait for it wait for it, who told the local press he was relieved that his old adversary had finally been given a proper burial. Okay, Frank, weren't you the one who fucking sold him to the Elks Club in the first place, you asshole? Wow. The audacity.
0: The audacity indeed. Mm -hmm. He's like, I was with him getting
1: a burial this whole time. Yep, that's what I wanted. I mean, I didn't make a few thousand dollars off of selling the legend of Keogh to the Las Vegas fucking Elks Club. Like declaring (laughs) that
0: you retroactively made the right decisions. What a fucking asshole. Asshole.
1: Now, I know this is all legend, and we discussed this case in his highlights But really, it's about, like, how crimes were reported, you know? Yeah. Like, this shows exactly how dumb the news and reporting is, and the sensationalizing of stories is what makes legends. Yeah. So we don't think of, like, the stuff that's happening now as something that's going to be a legend, right? It's going to turn into a meme, but back then, this is how legends started. It was just misrepresentation Racial biases, straight up racism, and just sensationalizing everything. Yeah.
0: yeah. I mean, and of course, there is a big difference between then and now, right? Like, Mm -hmm. we have the ability to fact check, like, instantly, right? Yeah. and have Perry, mul- paper trails, paper trails, <laughs> multiple news outlets, mm-hmm. you know, in the thousands to choose from. Some of them not as reputable as others, but the point is like versus getting your news from like two or three sources that ran mm-hmm. the news industry that you just had to trust. They knew what they were talking about because you live 50 miles away mm-hmm. and that is too far to walk. Yeah. <laughs> like, really? You know?
1: Yeah. So the reality is that probably less than a quarter of this tale is true. Oh. And did he kill someone? Probably. Most likely. I mean, there's not many people back then who didn't fucking kill someone or had their hands in some sort of nefarious dealings. Sure. But was he a regular rampage, slaughtering, stealing fucking guy coming across everyone he encountered? Or almost everyone? Because Mm -hmm. there are people who said that they saw him all the time and nothing happened? Well, and those people that were like,
0: he was super nice.
1: Yeah. So I'm going to venture to guess that maybe he killed one person. Yeah. Maybe two. Yeah. But all of those things in the newspapers that were reported, highly doubtful. Yeah. He was a scapegoat. And in fact, many of the newspapers and musings now that look back at the legend often are titled scapegoat. Yeah. So that is the maybe allegedly legend of Kehoe.
0: Interesting. I like that. That was a wild ride. <laughs> that, was a, that was a wild ride. It was a Hell Dorado style ride. <laughs> so before you decide to go and blow all your money in Las Vegas. Buying a corpse. Buying a corpse, apparently. Uh, why don't you check out this podcast?
1: Murder Road Trip is a true crime podcast where I, your host Haley, discuss murder cases in my car, a.k.a. the Mobile Beats Lab. Join me and my partner in crime, HH Gnomes, on the road. There will be games, mixtapes, and snacks as I make the research journey to murder scenes around the world. Make sure to check your back seat, and I'll see you at the next rest stop. <laughs> <laughs> All right,
0: folks, that has been our episode. What a wild ride! Yeah. I like that. It's interesting, <laughs> um, Janelle. What have you got for us today? Well,
1: we have a event. Yes. What in a pandemic? Yes. <laughs> so we were invited to be part of a podcast festival called Dark Matters, which is uh, happening in accordance with Side Street Studio Arts and Ghostly Podcast. Okay. Remember those guys? <laughs>
0: yeah, those two is <it> amazing.
1: <laughs> so we're going to attend this festival. It's in February. It's the twenty fifth and twenty sixth. We will have our show uh, February twenty sixth at five thirty. As of now, it is still in person. Yes. If that changes, we will let you know. But yeah. you can go to sidestreetstudioarts.org, purchase tickets. It's $10 for the whole weekend. Yeah. So you may, you pay that $10 ticket, you can go see all of the shows. I yeah, think there's they a lot have of good shows. six podcasts. There's that a are lot coming. of good podcasts that are going to be up there. This so year. Um, there also, I think, is going to be an art show in relation mm-hmm. to it and um, some other like merch kind of thing happening in sure. the um, store that's right next door. Yeah. So if you want to come see us and a bunch of other cool, dark, and spooky, it's true crime. It's paranormal. It's all the things that all of us enjoy. It's the spooky, ooky stuff. Yes. Um, Go on over to Side Street Studio Arts and get your tickets for Dark Matters. Yeah. And <laughs> definitely, I mean, keep an
0: eye on the Facebook and Twitter mm-hmm. and Instagram where we will be posting any updates as we hear them. Yes. So um, that is very exciting. Um, Do we have anything else? Is that it? That's it. That's. I mean, I mean that's into... all that there needs to be. That's all that there needs to be for me, because mm-hmm. I feel like my life is an uproar at the moment, but it's mm-hmm. fine. You know, life's, yeah. life's on fire, but everything's okay. Right?
1: Just roast a marshmallow
0: and yeah. pretend it was on purpose. Yeah, right. <laughs> all right. Well, with that, our sound and editing is by Tiff Fullman. Our music is by Jason Zascheski, the Enigma. <laughs> This has been the Bad Taste Crime Podcast. We will see you in two
1: weeks. Goodbye. Tam to mosey along, partners. M- mosey. <laughs> nice. Because it's the Wild West. Oh. <laughs> young women had left their bodies on the hillsides along the highway. <laughs> it was as if a wave of the evil washed over this town. <laughs> we, of the we are all <laughs> evil. In some form or another
0: wild wild west no I'm going to the wild wild west (laughs)